The sermon text reading is from Romans 12, 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I came across an article in Fast Company magazine recently, and the title of the article really got my attention. It says, the great resignation has morphed into the great sabbatical. Interesting, huh? Not a religious article, no one religious in this piece. But said this, that because, especially because of the pandemic, but in the last four years, people pursuing mid-career sabbaticals has tripled in number. It's a lot. And they interviewed a number of people in the article. One of them was a woman named Christy Andrews. And Christy was in a corporate position. She had children at home. And when the pandemic hit, everything changed for her. She was thinking about a career trajectory and, and where to go and things like that. And she noted that someone on LinkedIn had recently shared that they were going on a sabbatical. And it actually led her to take her own. But she said this at one point in the article. She said, five years ago, I could not have written that post on LinkedIn that got celebrated, Andrew said. People would have said, you've lost your mind. You're insane. This is not a good idea. What are you doing? They would have thought it was a midlife crisis or something. I think we've come so far, so fast, and the pandemic has really accelerated that. I can tell you just anecdotally, even from talking with some of you here at City Church, and certainly even talking with other people outside the church, this is a trend that's going on. And some of you have actually taken recent sabbaticals, and, and you know the power of what those are. And today we're finishing up a series uh, that we've been doing for the last three weeks called Sabbath. And, and we're coming to calling today, and I think this is a really important one to end on. I've been saying along the way that what I'm doing for my sabbatical, which of course begins tomorrow, is looking at rest, renewal, and calling, what we're talking about today, and how do we discern our call but there are a lot of people who would say, I feel like as I approach you know, the end of the pandemic and approach you know, potential sabbatical in my life, they feel like they're in what's called liminal space. If you're not familiar with that term liminal space, liminal space means to, to have a sense that you're at a crossroads of some sort, that you are on the precipice, the cusp of, of something different in your life. And so you enter into that liminal space, feeling the tension, but, but seeking a resolution to that. And for a lot of people, the mid-career, the reason why these have tripled is that they've gone into the pandemic and they said, you know what, I've been on this trajectory and I'm not sure if I want to be on this trajectory any longer. And it could be that for some of you this morning, you're saying, yeah, right now, 
I, you know, I, I, I've got two different uh, choices with my, with my work. I could go in this direction or in that direction. I have two different job choices potentially. Or, or maybe it's not about job. Maybe this morning it's, it's more around, you know, I just want to know what my gifts are. I just really want to know, like, what am I destined for? What should I be doing? How do I use my gifts for both the church and the world? My hope is in this last sermon for the next four months for me, in this last sermon, I might give you some direction. But ultimately, it's God that would give us direction for whatever it is that you face. So this morning, we're going to do three things. We're going to look at the basis for a calling. Where does it come from to begin with? Second, the place of calling. And I'll explain more about how this is different from basis. Then finally, the outcome. So basis, we're going to look at the place and then actually calling. Or excuse me, outcome at the end here. Let's look at the first thing and look at verse 1 with me again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Many years ago, I had a friend who said, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you should ask this question, what's it there for? And so whenever Paul or anyone uses that therefore, it reflects something that's happened before. And so for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, and if you know anything about the book of Romans, it's some pretty, pretty... uh, uh, heady uh, theology, we might say. There's a lot going on where Paul is laying out this great case for the gospel, for the good news, and for the truth of our faith. One chapter after another, very famously, some of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament are in the first eight to nine chapters in the book of Romans. And so then he comes to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, and he says, sacrifice, living sacrifice. Now, a couple things about that. One is, whether you were an early Christian, young Christian, because they would have been back in the first days of Christianity, whether you're Jewish still, or whether you were coming from a, a pagan background or still were a pagan, everyone in that culture understood what a sacrifice was. A sacrifice always involved blood. In other words, it always involved atonement. And so at the, at the center of atonement is the idea that, that whenever there's a debt, whenever there's even a punishment needed, there's a blood. And so blood was looked upon in the olden days, and still today, and to a certain degree, we still understand this, as the animating force of life, the life force, as it were. We, we know that because, uh, because of blood, we, we have nutrients and oxygen that, are, that travel around the body that allow us to live. And so blood is kind of the core, the center of who we are. And so the idea of a sacrifice was significant because it was the life force, as it were. And so what Paul, I think, is getting at here is something very interesting because he doesn't say, in view of the sacrifice of Jesus, the first 11 chapters of Romans, now be a sacrifice as well. That's not what he says. He says a living sacrifice, which is a paradox. Be a living death. A living killing is literally what it means there. Wait a minute, Paul. What does that mean? A living killing. It means this, because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, the destroyed sacrifice, the death sacrifice. Now, rather than being put to death, we live. And yet we sacrifice ourselves. In other words, what that means is, because Jesus was put to death, we now live for him. That becomes our sacrifice. So the very first thing I want you to see is the basis for how do we discern our calling is worship. This is why at the very end he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. It is to give yourself completely and wholly to him, fully over to him. 
this has really brought home to me uh, in my own life. Like, what does it mean to give yourself completely to someone? Because I think especially here in the West, we struggle to say someone else will be the captain of our destiny. Someone else will be the master of our lives. When I was in sixth grade, I went to a summer camp. My parents are here this morning. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, by the way. And, uh, but she will remember this as well, that in sixth grade, I went to a summer camp, Camp Glen, and there I felt the call to become a pastor. Now, what's funny about that, there's another guy with me. We all approached the altar. The two of us approached the altar. We felt this call. And he's like, man, this is amazing. We need to stay in touch. And so he wrote me a letter. I wrote him a letter back. And then he wrote me another letter, and I never wrote him back. And that was because I had determined that I was not supposed to be doing this. So fast forward about seven, eight years, and now in college, I'm a political science major. I think now my destiny is politics. Don't hold that against me. But I really thought I was on a congressional campaign. And to make a long story short, I was doing a lot of things, both on the college campus as well as on a congressional campaign. And so I'll never forget, I actually had left college early to work on this campaign. I came back just in time for our uh, graduation. And on the day of graduation, there was a guy, he wasn't even a close friend. He was on a brother hall, but he knew me, named Michael. And he, Michael said to me, he said, Scott, I can see you being a pastor one day. Now, I wasn't doing anything ministry related at the time. I was going to church on a Sunday morning. He wasn't even going to the same church with me or anything like that. But that was it. And so, I don't know if it was a prophetic thing or what, but he was like that. And I literally said to him, I'm not kidding, I literally looked him in the eye and I said, over my dead body, will I ever become a pastor? Voila. <laughs> God's sense of humor, right? I mean, I said that literally to him. I said, over my dead body. See, for me, I determined that God loves me, but I have a wonderful plan for my life. I knew the direction that I wanted to go. I knew that I had a career trajectory where I wanted to have influence in the world. I mean, I joke today, when I take a shower, I still run for office every time. Like I always think about, oh, I could do that better, right? We do that, armchair quarterbacking. But, but you know, God had a different plan for my life. It reminds me of something that Dallas Willard said in a work called Spirit of the Disciplines. He said this, in the heart of a disciple, there is a desire, and there is a decision or settled intent. The disciple of Christ desires above all else to be like him. The disciple is one who intent upon becoming Christ-like, and so dwelling in his faith and practice, systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. What is discipleship, Dallas says, is to rearrange all of your affairs. I mean, that is, that's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's what it means to completely and wholly say, I hold nothing back. My hands are wide open. Take me, Lord, and use me, he said. You know, and, and I, I just want to really press this point home just briefly one more time. A friend of mine says this. It's fascinating that Jesus, he doesn't come to the West like, think about geographically. When Jesus comes into the world, he's incarnated. Where is he incarnated? The Middle East. Now, it's fascinating. He doesn't go to the West. He doesn't go to the Far East. And, and, and a friend of mine said, the gospel comes as a critique of all cultures, between cultures. And so, think about this. Here in the West, in particular, we, we celebrate individual, individualism, individuality, but certainly individualism. So, I will be the captain of my own destiny. I will be the master of where I go. And the gospel critiques this, says you're more than an individual, but you also belong to a community. But the gospel also looks to the Far East. 
where it's not your primary identity being that you are an individual, but it's your family is, right? And so in, in the far west, say, I will determine the kind of career path I take. In the Far East, if you know, uh, for people who've come from that culture, often it's your family determines who you will be. You will become a doctor. You'll become a lawyer. It doesn't matter what your passions desire. And so what the gospel does is, is it critiques the Far East and it critiques the Far West. And But especially for us here in the Far West, I think this is an incredibly important point to make. The gospel says, look, I've given you passions. I've given you gifts but I determine your pathway. A friend of mine says, different friend, but he says this, the problem with a living sacrifice is it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. You know, I think that's a great picture. It has a tendency to crawl off the altar. Now, if you're here and you're maybe exploring Christianity, and you're saying, well, so far you haven't exactly impressed upon me a desire to become a Christian in light of the fact that I will not be captain of my own destiny here. I want to be free, and this doesn't sound like freedom. Well, listen to what verse 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul is saying there, he says, all right, if you're not going to be conformed by Christ, you'll be conformed by the world. In other words, there's no such thing as pure, unadulterated freedom. He's saying something or someone will always be a voice in your life. There always will be something that shapes you, that conforms you. The question is not, will you be a disciple, but of whom will you be a disciple? I have a guy that I work with right now. He's a church planter. Some of you know that I coach church planters. And just recently, in fact, this past week, I was talking with him. And, and, he, and by his own admission, he says, I am a, is a, I'm a big time, big time repenting right now, but big time uh, people pleaser. And so in this very small church community, what he finds is that he's making decisions not because he's being led by conviction and boldness of the direction as a leader how to lead that church, but by his own admission, he said, sometimes, Scott, I find myself making decisions based upon how, how people will respond, certain people in our church, because we're small and, and I'm afraid of, that they might not like this and they might disappear and that sort of thing. And what he's learned is it doesn't matter what decision you make, even if you lead like that, people will leave. Because they're not seeing your leadership. And he's learned that. But, but, he's, but what he's saying there is like, I, I'm not being conformed by the voice of the Lord, but I'm, I'm listening to the voices of others. And those things are conforming my journey. And so my, my point is, whether you know, regardless of where you are on the journey towards Jesus, something is conforming you. Something is shaping you. And the question is, is it for you or against you ultimately? Does it care deeply for you? Does it long for your best? Right? Paul says in verse 2, to be renewed by him. And in doing so, we worship him. Right? And in, in doing so, we discern his will. More on that here in a little bit. And I, one of the things I, I, I long for for the City Church community as an example uh, regarding our work and the idea of renewal here, being our minds being renewed, being conformed by, conformed by his image, is something that ultimately, originally came out of the Protestant Reformation. Out of the Protestant Reformation, because primarily of Martin Luther's work and leadership, there became a new vision for work. It had been prior to Luther that those who worked in, quote-unquote, full-time ministry, they were priests in the Catholic Church, 
Like that was a higher position and also then secondarily those in academia, right? Uh, and then everything else was secondary. But because of Luther, he said every member of minister, every, it was called the priesthood of all believers, that all people are now priests is what he's saying there, that all people are in full-time ministry. And so one of the things that, that used to be regarding our work is that we looked at our work not as a career or job, but as vocation. Now, that's important because the word vocation comes from a Latin word, vocare, vocal, to be called, you see. And so it used to be that when you looked at your gifts, you looked at your skills, you naturally said, God has given me this, and he's called me to this line of work. But because of secularism, we no longer think that way. We say to ourselves, I have a career. What do I need to do to advance my career? How do I ensure that my skill set prepares me for a financially lucrative retirement, maybe, or at least uh, be fulfilled, this personal sense of fulfillment. And God's not against any of that. He wants you to be fulfilled, but it begins with recognizing the call, vocation versus a job. And so I would love it if, if our congregation, while I'm gone, that all of you discovered vocation in the place of your career, that, that you, 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 you had a sense, man, I, I'm in full-time ministry. It's not just Scott. It's not just Mike in full-time. By the way, this past Tuesday, Matt Ruloffs passed his final examination to become ordained. Yay for Matt. Yeah. Sadly, he's upstairs with the kids, so he can't receive your praise. So let, ha, praise him later, I guess. But it's not just us. It's not, we're not in full-time. We're, we, we're given a unique call, yes. But I long for you to say, I'm in full-time ministry, and I'm in business. I'm in full-time ministry, and I'm a school teacher. I'm in full-time ministry, and this is my vocation. This is what I do. So your gifts aren't just for the church. It's for the world. You know? And so this is what I long for that. And, you know, I'm a full-time ministry, and I'm a, and I'm a mother. Happy Mother's Day to you all. The toughest job in the land, right? You know? And what does Paul say here? He doesn't just say, hey, have your mind renewed. What does he say there in verse 1? Your whole body. Give your whole self. There was this picture because in Greek culture, primarily in the Greek Greco-Roman culture that, that he's writing to there in the Church of Rome, what they understood was it was the mind, right? It was the mind that was the priority. But the body, you could do whatever you wanted to. So as long as you kept your mind pure, then you could go prostitute yourself at the local temple. You could do whatever you wanted to. They had a very low view of the body. And so I think very, uh, very interestingly but distinctly, Paul chooses the idea of body as the sense of giving your whole self over to him. And so the challenge is, as you think about vocation, do you think that way? Saying, man, take all of me, Lord. My skills, not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, between the Sundays. Lord, leverage this for ministry. What is my ministry on Monday morning? As I go to the office, whether at home or a physical office somewhere else. So here's the last thing I want to say. I'm, by the way, if you're looking at your clock saying, well, we're not even doing the first point. Most of it's going to be the first point, just so you know. But here's the last thing I want to say about that. You're saying, man, Scott, I want that. I want to be in full-time ministry, if that's what that means. I want to better discern the basis of my calling as a living sacrifice. There's one thing remaining, and that is how do you listen to the voice of God? Now, we talked a little bit about that last week. In fact, we talked a lot about that. But I want to read a passage from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. It's Elijah, and Elijah in his ministry as a prophet is, has been through hell, really. 
he wants to die, actually. He's exhausted. He's, he's actually, we would say, he's, he's clinically depressed is the language that a psychiatrist would use regarding Elijah. I want you to hear something that the Lord says to him. One of many things. He says this, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. I think often as Christians, we think, oh, liminal space, big thing's going to happen. It's going to be an earthquake. It's going to be the fire, right? The Holy Spirit fire, of course. But it's going to be fire. It's going to be something big. It's going to be a big neon sign in my life. And what I think this passage reveals to us is that more often than not, how we live in the liminal space, how we hear the voice of the Lord is, is in the gentle whisper. And so if God often, and I would say even primarily, speaks in gentle whispers to us. How are you going to hear a whisper? You know, when your child, mothers, when your child wants to whisper to you, you have to draw close. The only way, the only way we can know what it means to be a living sacrifice is to draw close and hear the gentle whisper. When I was doing my last sabbatical seven years ago, at the very end I did the silent retreat. And and when I was on that retreat, uh, I remember preparing. I was actually flying up to a location, and literally as I was flying, I was like, God, all right, you know, as a pastor, I spent the last seven years, I'm now reviewing that. Now I'm looking forward to my next seven years with City Church. God, what are you calling me to do? I, I want to know, what are you calling me to do? And so, you know, I went up to this idea of saying, I, look, here, I'm at the very end, the tail end of my uh, sabbatical, it's time now to say, God, what do you want me to do? What's my calling? And so the very first night, I'm literally, I kid you not, the very first night I'm by myself in this place and I'm entering the first kind of time of formal prayer, as it were, as part of the silent retreat. And I say, God, what are you calling me to? And, and it wasn't audible, but it might as well have been. Very clearly, clear as day that night. And he said, I call you my son. And it broke me. I thought calling meant just tell me what to do. My hands are open, living sacrifice, just tell me what to do. And I, I realized something. I realized something that the renewing of my mind here is that it, it begins with the therefore. See, this, is the most, this may be the most important thing I can tell you in the whole sermon. The therefore is there because of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, as one example. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then later on in Romans chapter 8, he says, For you have been adopted as sons and daughters. You are my beloved, in other words. Don't you see? If you want to know what is your calling in life, it begins with being called as a son or daughter first. And only then, you have to first be before you do. And only then does he call you in your career vocation or in your volunteer work, only then, for the church and for the world, and only then. You see, you have to do not pass go without collecting your $200, right? You, you have to stop and, and hear the voice of the Lord and His kindness. It changed my life. I never thought about the kindness of the Lord towards me. 
I thought he just had a neutral look on his expression towards me. Maybe he was even disappointed. But instead he was prejudiced towards me with a smile. No condemnation, Scott. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. Right? And, and so I, I just say we have to draw close. And when we drew, in that gentle whisper, he says, I call you my son. I call you my daughter. Now go in light of that. Now, I want you to see that Paul's not done, and I'm not done either. Because <laughs> I want you to see the place of that discovery. It isn't just by yourself. Look at verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So the basis, but now see the place. And what you find out is that even when you go away on a silent retreat, what I did was I broke the silence and I was with a spiritual director who helped me interpret what was going on, what was, what was I hearing, and it was very clear that day. And, but regardless, like part of what Paul says here is that you don't do these things alone. You do them in a community. Even if you go away individually, silently to a place, you come back into the community and you discern together what is God saying. One of the most important things I think you can do, brothers and sisters, is to learn what your spiritual gifts are. I wonder, how many of you in here really have a good grasp of what you're good at? Like, what is the gifting? Like, Paul gives a list in verses 6 through 8, by the way. It's one of several lists, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. And there's some overlap between the list here. But Paul is really passionate about making sure that God's people know what their gifts are. And I wonder, do you know? And, and, And let me... I'm going in a certain direction with this. There is a website called spiritualgiftstest.com. Let me encourage you to go there. Or find another one. There's a free and a paid version on that site, spiritualgiftstest.com. Learn a little bit. And then and then, what would it look like to, in looking at those things, to say, huh, now here's what's fascinating. When you do that with your small group, your DNA group, when you do that in your neighboring community, when you do that with a group of friends, whether people here at this church or somewhere else, but people who value spiritually what you value, here's what's fascinating. They'll say, you know what? Uh, the gift of mercy came up. It was really high. And that friend says, oh, my gosh. Yes, you, you have that in spades. Let me give you an example of how I've experienced that with you, right? Or, it's, you know, it's teaching. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, I've seen that. Even Remember with last, last week when you shared what you were going through and you, you shared something from Scripture about that? And you taught me Scripture. I can see that gift. It's called external affirmation. And you, as a follower of Christ, need people in your life to confirm and affirm your gifting. Because your gifts aren't just for you. They're for the church and for the world. If you've come into this place today, you've come and you're going to be served spiritually today. But by coming into the place of worship, your calling is all to serve one another. And so when you learn your gifts, it empowers you. When it empowers you, you can then, therefore, use your gifts, not just on a Sunday morning. Some of you have the gift of hospitality, you know, and you serve coffee. Thank you, Andrew. And and others of you have great gifts, and you're, you're leveraging, you're lining up your gifts appropriately. Thank you so much. But it's not just about Sundays. It's about between the Sundays. And it's not just for the church. It's about serving the world. And here's the thing. I bet you. I bet you, a lot of you, when you heard spiritual gift, you thought, oh, that's for the church. And it is. It's not less than that. But did you know that all of 
the spiritual gifts that Paul lays out there, they're for the world too, right? One list is the gift of administration. Some of you have the what I affectionately call the gift of spreadsheets. Like, and it's not just for the church, right? It's not just where you volunteer, but it, it's also what you do for pay between the Sundays. And so every spiritual gift that, that you are able to highlight, guess what? You can leverage those gifts for your workplace. You can leverage those gifts for your vocation, you see, because you're called. You're the called ones, as it turns out. And I, I love this picture here, the gifts not just for the church, for the world. And so I invite you, by the way, Ed Burdett leads a class here uh, once a year called Discover Your Design. Great place. If you've never taken that course, let me encourage you to do so. I'm not sure when our next one is. Ed can let you know, or we'll let you know up front here sometime. But let me encourage you. It's a great place. Some people have changed their career trajectory because they've taken that class. It's a great opportunity to learn more. But here's the main thing. The whole reason why all of this takes place, the whole reason why this takes place is because Jesus was a destroyed sacrifice for you and for me so that we could be a living sacrifice. And notice there in verse 1, going back there, he says, Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Not, hey, Jesus did this for you. You better do something for him. No. He says, in light of the grace here, in light of his mercy, now now go and serve him out of joy. Go leverage your gifts. Go leverage your passions. Just out of joy of, of serving the one who was the destroyed sacrifice for you. And this is where I want to end. Just very briefly here, the outcomes. A couple things I want to point out. Number one, it's in verse two. Paul very clearly says, if you present yourself as a living sacrifice, present your whole self, live according to you, the gifts that God has given you, he says, you will know God's will. It's a simple, you don't have to worry, well, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll never exactly know God's will for my life. Well, if you become a living sacrifice for him, Paul says, it's going to happen. I've already said something about this, so let me move on to number two here, and that is in verse three. Let's read this together. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's what that means. Two important words there, grace and sober. Because of God's grace, Paul says to me, I have a sober reflection of myself. Because I have gifts, I have skills, and I've not accrued them myself, but they've been given to me as gift. Grace is literally what that means. It sobers me. Now, here's what I think that means. Here's my translation. Bold humility. It's a phrase that I like to use around here. And because it's sober, the word literally means an accurate assessment of my gifts. And so, you have to know what your gifts are. But here's, what, here's the key. In knowing your gifts, it can lead to one of two extremes. Either, oh, I, I want to minimize that gift. I don't want others to know about the gift. And, and so you lack boldness. Is what that means. You, you lack the, the confidence to share what your gifts are with others. The church needs to know what your gifts are. And it's okay to celebrate your gifts. Right? It's not selfish to say, I have a gift in this arena. Some of you are excellent leaders in the business place, in the marketplace. You have been given a gift by God to leverage that for the sake of the marketplace, to lead others, to bring flourishing of life to others. Some of you are teachers. I look around this room. Some of you are saying, yes, I'm a teacher, but I can't wait for summer. Almost there, gang. Almost there. And you have a gift of teaching. Right? And, 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 like, and celebrate that gift. Right? But the opposite is also true. 
you can put too much of your identity in your gift, and that leads to a superiority complex and the tendency to minimize the gifts of other people here. And so when Paul says sober judgment, he's saying don't go to the extremes of either minimizing your gift or over-maximizing your gift in terms of your communication, but instead have a sober assessment, an honest, accurate reflection. Yes, I have a great gift, but thanks be to God, it comes from him and it humbles me. And so what a joy and what a pleasure to serve the king with my gift. That's the sober. So you know God's will. It sobers you. But here's the final thing. It gives you new purpose. There's a great TED Talk. Let me encourage you to go listen to it. 17 minutes in length. By a man named Stefan Sagmeister. And he runs a design firm out of New York City. And the TED Talk is actually from about 13 years ago. And so he's done a couple of these ever since then. But every seven years, Stefan Sagmeister, who tells us in the video, he's not religious. He takes a one-year sabbatical. Now, here's what he does. The whole firm shuts down for a year. And so on September 1, there's an email message that says, come back in one year's time and we'll help you out. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And so here's what he argues. He says, rather than waiting to the end of my life, right, when I'm old and decrepit, <laughs> why not take every seven years a year off? And he says, why not, why not see what happens when I take some time off? And so again, he's not religious, but... So the whole firm went to Bali for a year. I can't imagine this. Like, what in the world? What was that like? And so they're showing pictures of him. They're, they're meditating um, out there in Bali, having a great time, it looks like. And he says this. He says, we are so productive the other six years because of that one year. And he shows you anecdotally story after story of their design work and how it all came out of the one year when they allowed the soil to lay fallow in their lives. And so what does that mean? It means that when you allow the soil to lay fallow, some of the best stuff of learning about who you are, about the the purpose and the direction of your life, it's not going to happen Monday through Friday in the office. Sorry. It's just not going to happen there. You have to get away. You have to allow the soil to lay fallow for a while. And Sagmeister, who's not even religious, picks up on something that every Christian here should should adhere to. You're like, yeah, I'd like a year in Bali. Yeah, who, wouldn't we all? And the reality is most of us will never be able to have even like remotely think about that. In fact, a lot of us in here won't even be able to take four months off the way that, that I'm going to be able to do. You're saying, man, I, I don't know if I could take a week or two off. Who knows? But guess what? Every Sunday you have a Sabbath. And a sabbatical is just comprising of a lot of Sabbaths together. And so what would it look like if this afternoon... Well, it's Mother's Day, so maybe not. Next Sunday, or another Sunday, what would it look like for you to say, you know what, I'm going to go out to the Monastery of the Holy Spirit for five hours. Or I'm just going to go down to Deep Dean Park, or, or maybe it'll be you know, uh, Piedmont Park. I'm going to go down there, and I'm just going to take a journal with me. I'll take the Bible, maybe, and do some prayer and meditation and reflection. You would be amazed. Just give yourself some space to say, Nothing else I'm going to think about. One of the tricks you can do, take a little post-it notes with you, and as things enter your mind, oh, i got to do this, i got to do that, just write them down. Put it to the side. Give yourself the space. You would be amazed with how rich your ideational life will be. God is speaking. It's a gentle whisper. Often. He says, come and follow me as disciple. I want to close by just saying this, that um, I am deeply deeply excited for the next four months of my life. 
as I, as I enter into that liminal space and I say, Lord, I'm listening. What do you have for me for my ministry here at City Church beyond after uh, the four months here? But my hope and prayer is that you will take the next four months and you'll pursue your own sabbatical. And again, it may be just a few hours at a time, but that you would take it seriously, that charge to rest, renewal, and calling. And if you will do so seriously, if you'll worship him through those mediums, I promise you, you'll experience a richness of life. You'll be enriched beyond your wildest dreams that no paycheck in the workplace could ever put a price tag on. You were made for that. You were designed for that. And so may you find that this summer. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for City Church, the place that that you have given me to serve for all these years, the last 15 years. Thank you for periods of rest, uh, a longer Sabbath. Lord, I don't take it for granted. It is a gift directly given by the elders of this church to me, but ultimately it's a gift from you. And so I say thank you publicly, and I worship you for this privileged opportunity I have to rest. Father, I pray, though, for our people, my my brothers and sisters, I pray that I would not alone sabbatical this summer. I pray that collectively our whole church community would experience a downshift this summer, extra space just to be, not to do. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray for grace for, for those who will be carrying a heavier load in my absence this summer. Lord, bless them and keep them. Cause your face to shine upon them especially. May we as a community be gracious towards them for the next several months. Lord, bless us all to hear your voice. Lord, you, you have a trajectory, you have a journey for us. And often it's through our passions, it's ultimately through our gifts that we, that we find our calling. And so, Lord, you call us sons and daughters first. And so, living out of our true identity, may we love well the church and the world between the Sundays. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who was our once and for all sacrifice, so that we might be a living sacrifice unto you. And to his name we pray. Amen.